Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things they cherish, and one they would like to lock away for good. Now, if you listened to the last episode of my time capsule and you listened all the way to the end, then you know that my guest in this episode is the actor, writer, comedian, and composer, Izzy Sooty. I can't imagine many people listen right to the end of a podcast, so for the rest of you, let me tell you about Izzy. Izzy was born in Hull and started playing the guitar and writing songs at the age of 12 after she was refused saxophone lessons, possibly by a very picky saxophone teacher. She began performing stand-up in 2003 and has taken a number of solo shows to the Edinburgh Fringe and toured them around the country. In 2008, she was nominated for Best Female Newcomer at the British Comedy Awards, then Female Breakthrough Artist in 2011 and Best Female TV Comic in 2014. On radio, she made two series for BBC Radio 4 of Izzy City's Love Letters. She won a gold Sony Radio Award and provides voices for Penelope, Princess of Pets and the revolting world of Stanley Brown. As an actor, she's appeared in Holby City, The Trouble with Love, Rabsy Nesbitt and Skins, which she also wrote for. She was in Shameless, Great Night Out, Damned, Man Down and possibly most notably, she played the IT geek Dobby in Peep Show from 2008 to 2015. Her first book, The Actual One, was published in 2016, and Jane is Trying, her debut novel, which focuses on the anxieties of modern life and the desperate desire for everything to go perfectly, is available now in all good bookstores. In fact, in all bookstores. Izzy is engaged to the Welsh comedian Ellis James, and they have two children. So, let's discover what five things Izzy wants to put in her time capsule. So, Izzy, how gorgeous to have you on my time capsule. Thank you, Mike. You're seeing inside my bedroom. I am seeing inside your bedroom. No juicy secrets, are there? No. A folder about our mortgages in the background and <laughs> a towel, that's it. <laughs> that's all there is. Yeah. So, we're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule and preserve. In whatever way, you can either preserve them for posterity or you can preserve them as a personal thing, something you'd like to keep. Okay. Um, the first thing is a four-leaf clover. And that's because I, I have actually possessed a four-leaf clover in my life. I don't think that many people can say that. Really? Yeah. When, and you may have done this as well, when I was starting off my career, when I just graduated from drama school, I had lots of terrible jobs that were kind of quite fun at the time, but 
now I look back and think, I don't really know how I did them. Um, like lots and lots of call centres where it was just full of actors, kind of really anxious actors mm-hmm. going, I need, I need to go to my audition for two hours and then the supervisor isn't going to let me go. And I said, I'll be back. And, um, one where we had to ring doctors and ask them to do a survey about stroke drugs. And if they were in the middle of seeing someone, we were we were told we had to ask whoever answered to try and get them as if it was really important. And then we were oh. then we'd say, Will you do this survey for a twenty pound Marks and Spencer's voucher about stroke drugs? So I was sort of doing a lot of these jobs and kind of thinking, Am I ever gonna earn any money, any proper money from acting or writing or singing and the different things that I did. And I was walking to a job along an industrial estate. It was quite a bleak walk. And um, I looked down at this patch of clover. And as I looked down, I thought, when I was a child, I used to think about four-leaf clovers all the time because they appear in stories quite a lot, don't they, as a kind of good luck charm. And as I thought that, I looked down and um, there was a four-leaf clover just in my eyeline. It was really weird. I didn't even have to look for it. And I don't know if I believe in that. My friend Sarah Pascoe believes in synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And I think she might say then that that was meant to be. And I find that really interesting, that synchronicity thing. But who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Synchronicity or coincidence, I don't know. Yes, or coincidence, exactly. I mean, when you think about the number of things that are happening in the world at any one time, Out of those perfectly normal things, a lot of very extraordinary things are bound to happen. Yes, that's true, because you've got so many things happening. Mm. And also, it's possible that I looked at the four-leaf clover then thought at the same time, I wonder if there's a four-leaf clover. Because sometimes when you play things back in your head, you think, oh, I had the thought first and then I saw it. But I swear that that is the case, that I thought to myself, oh, clover. If only, if only. (laughs) I wish I I could see a frog that spoke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes I wish I could see a fox in a waistcoat with a pipe um, probably a good job you didn't think that yes it you... is actually maybe I've got these superpowers um yeah so I put it in my wallet and then I took it to work and then I'd like to say that my look really changed dramatically but I think very slowly it did but then I don't know if that's also because I was going and doing gigs every single night and taking my guitar into the call centres and getting better <laughs> yeah Um, And I don't know if you remember doing things like this, but I remember doing jury service once. This is around the four-leaf clover time, actually. And um, I was still gigging every night. So I had to take my guitar into the court every morning (laughs) and kind of sign it over to this security guard who's really bemused by the whole thing. And it had to be put in this special cupboard with a tag on it because obviously it was in the court. And uh, then I'd go off to somewhere like Tunbridge Wells and uh, do a gig having done jury service all day. I did jury service. I studied law at university. So I a number of times wrote to them saying, look, I know what goes on behind the scenes. So in fact, I'll have a biased view of things. Because if you say the jury have to leave now, we're going to talk about something in camera. I'll know what you mean. And I'll know why you're doing it. I'll think it's because you think there hasn't been enough evidence or it's not a very good case. Whereas the rest of the jury won't know that. Yeah. They took no notice of me at all. God, it's weird, isn't it? I think they must be used to people trying not to do it. It's very odd because you're sort of alone when you're doing jury service, aren't you? Because you know that your opinion is eventually going to be very important. And you've got all these thoughts going through your head the whole time about whether they did it or not. And then you get into that room and it's like... Now we've got to all work together for the first time as a team. Having not been allowed to talk to yes, each other. Yes, exactly. It's, it's odd. There was a woman in my group of jurors who smoked a lot. So once we'd all been discharged to the room, we all had to stay together. We couldn't leave each other. And there was a toilet in the room, not, you know, it had a door on it. <laughs> it's not that <laughs> bad, but, you know, and so she smoked a lot. And so we had to all traipse downstairs to the outdoor <laughs> bit so she could have a fag and then all go up again. That's my abiding memory of it, actually. Yeah, I know. So how long did you keep this four-leaf clover in your wallet? I think I had it for a couple of years and then I was at a gig and I just felt it was time to pass it on. And there was another comic on who I don't know very well and uh, I just thought I'm going to give it to him. Well, the test of it would be if he then became Michael McIntyre. Yes, and that comic was, haven't seen him since. He doesn't do the circuit anymore, weirdly. Um, (laughs) That would be a good test, actually, wouldn't it? 
to get loads of four-leaf clovers. Maybe you could get real four-leaf clovers and make fake four-leaf clovers. At school, I remember that. Yeah, I do. And that, that's why I initially couldn't believe that I was holding a four-leaf clover because that was the only thing that I'd seen in real life that looked like a four-leaf clover, the one where people had the leaf. And I was like, no, this is actually a four-leaf clover. This is amazing. And it actually, odd as it sounds, it, it was a really uplifting moment because I had this thing in my wallet that I kind of didn't know if it was really working, but I felt like everything was going to be all right. Suddenly the world's on your side. Yes. And it was, of course, but slowly, gradually. Gradually, you know, over the next 20 years, (laughs) you sort of say, is it that if it's a placebo, Mm. say, if you start to think, oh, I've got this thing that's bringing me good luck, I then think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you do start to act differently and you probably do smile more and you give off good vibes and then things do start to happen to you. So Yeah, walk into auditions with confidence. Yeah. I'm going to get this. And people like that. They do. And it's getting that balance, isn't it, between I don't need this job, but I think it would be quite fun if I got it and if I happened to be free kind of thing. (laughs) Um, The best audition advice that I ever received, actually, is to do the audition as if you've got the job and um, you're filming it and it's just before lunchtime And everyone's getting a bit kind of restless and they want to go for lunch and the crew are starting to look at their watches. And you've got this take to just do it as efficiently as possible. So I think that gets you to make quite bold choices because you just think, Mm. let's get this done, let's let's do it well, and then let's go on to have lunch. Yeah, but certainly taking away that that almost uh, element of pleading that there is in... Yeah. In your behaviour at some auditions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I, 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 could, I, I, I can take less money. <laughs> I'll do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drive there. You don't have to send a car. I'll bring a back lunch. I'll do my own makeup. <laughs> You've got the job. Yes, exactly. Uh, when I was younger, I went out with um, a guy who wrote stuff for telly and radio a bit. And he, I remember him saying to me, and I was very starting out, you know, in my, in my early 20s, he said he hated it when actors came in and said, oh, I really love the script. And I said, well, that's difficult because they probably do. So I sometimes think about that. If if I say to the writer, I really like the script, I always try and give a reason that I like it because of that, really. Because I think... Is it annoying if everyone comes in and goes, oh, I love the script, but sort of, you know, isn't specific. And it's kind of another version of, please give me the job. What a great part. Emma Thompson would be brilliant in this part. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. Hang on a moment. If you can't get her, though, I mean, I'm the next. (laughs) I'm going to try walking in and say, well, this script is shit, isn't it? Well, exactly. You could say, well, I've done a rewrite, actually. Um, You know, this is appalling. (laughs) Did you write in a day? The worst audition I ever did, I think, was for The Doctor's Notebook, I think it is, with Daniel um, Radcliffe. Right. Very good. And it was about a doctor from from the past, basically. And um, I went in and did it and it just wasn't hanging together. You know when, and gigs are like this too, Mm. and I'm sure you've felt this on stage and it doesn't happen so much with filming because it's much more technical, isn't it? But that feeling where the room just isn't quite right and you seem at odds with everything and you can't do anything right. I've had first dates like that as well. <laughs> um, and um, I went in and I just felt like I was absolutely awful at acting like that. I hadn't ever done it before. Mm. And when I was waiting to go in, the receptionist had given me a glass of water, which I'd taken into the room. So I did this first go and then they said, okay, can you try it? with blah, blah, blah. And it was the opposite to how I'd done it, basically. And I was like, okay, well, that's all right. At least they've given me a clear note. I'll do it like that. And then I couldn't stop myself from doing it in exactly the same way that I'd done it the first time. It was like, (laughs) I was just thinking to myself, what am I doing? And then you just think, oh God. So then they said, bye. And I said, bye. And then I walked onto the street. And then as I walked towards the tube, I realised that I was still holding the glass of water. Uh, That I'd just been so desperate to get out of the building. I just walked out of the door and carried on walking. (laughs) So, yeah. Oh Lord. I've had directors say to me, could you do it less big? Less <laughs> and you know big. you're lost. Yeah. There's no hope. <laughs> I know. But then I always think, 
And I know you've done a lot of panto. I've done a bit and I've done a lot of kids shows. Mm. And I think with panto, it's so much fun if you're with the right cast, isn't yeah. it? It's like, oh my gosh. And you've got those shows where everyone's really hung over and you sort of <laughs> manage to get in lines that you wouldn't have thought <laughs> would be possible. And it's just, um, I think it's really, really, really fun mm. and very tiring, but fun. Great. But I always think that if you do it too big, like you were essentially accused of, that's much better than doing it too small. And not just for those jobs, but if you cut a piece of material too big, you can always take a bit off. Whereas if someone's too subtle and kind of looking for their motivation, you go, actually, there's no motivation apart from you're throwing a custard pie at someone. (laughs) Um, It's very hard to make people do it bigger, I think. Yeah, well, I always think that pantomime is a great source of contradiction because you will do those absolutely enormous things the characters are huge the fact that you're doing it directly to an audience which is a very unusual form of acting in fact you even look people in the eye yes but at the same time you will do those things and then be able to absolutely throw away jokes that is very true that is very true i think the thing that people always think with panto is that it's all big But that is right. And it's those smaller moments that let the bigger moments breathe and vice versa. I think you can do those asides over your shoulder, can't you? You really throw away. And then the audience feels like they're in on this secret. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What I find interesting is when people from other countries don't have panto. <laughs> um, I used to live with an actor called Stephen Carlyle, who's lovely and he's in the li- been in The Lion King for years. Such a great actor and he's done a lot of panto. And he did one, I think it was The Swan in High Wycombe with Paul Nicholas. And he, at that point, had a girlfriend, this very serious, beautiful, lovely, but quite different, I suppose, from him, violinist. Mm. And I think she was Russian. I might have got that wrong. I'm sorry if I have, if you're listening, but (laughs) she was definitely from quite a different culture. um, And um, yes, I'm pretty sure it was Russian. The problem is my brain's gone panto now and I... I I'm, tr- I'm resisting <laughs> making a joke about Russian. Yes, yes you're doing very well because I know it's in your blood. Oh, God. Carry on. <laughs> um, so every morning she'd be playing the violin and it was like living in this amazing kind of concerto house where um, she'd just kind of pop up playing the violin. Anyway, so we went to see him in Panto and she was just absolutely bemused by the whole thing and found it funny, but was like, you forget how much of it you generally know if you've grown up in this country, don't yeah. you? Of um, You know the bit where they're probably going to th- throw sweets into the audience. Or in fact, booing at someone so loudly that they're unable to say their lines. Booing, yes. And that bit where there's normally people dancing together and they go one by one until there's only one yeah, left yeah, in the front. Yeah, yeah, the ghost routine. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I, I thought, wow, it is actually a very odd thing that you don't, <laughs> don't tend to analyse. But it's like, yeah, actually, this is quite weird, but it's really freeing. And um, I'm good friends with Jo Brand and she was in Panto a few years ago and we went to see her uh, with my daughter who was probably four or five. And it was brilliant. It was so much fun. And my daughter's eyes were just kind of like, what's going on? This That's the first time that she's... And it was like kind of seeing it all again through her eyes. Oh, brilliant. brilliant. When you're on stage, you look out and you see children so engaged and screaming at you because you're about to do something that's going to help the giant. They get completely engaged with it. There's an old people's home in North London, but it's only for actors. And they've had lots of really great actors live there. And I always say that's where I want to end up (laughs) if my partner pops his clogs before me. And I imagine that they put on, I know they've got a piano and they've got a stage. (laughs) So it's like, could there be a version of Panto? And you're very far, far away from this stage of your life. But where, say for the over 90s, you could do a kind of toned down Panto because they perhaps wouldn't have the stamina to do two acts. You could do kind of 15 minute chunks (laughs) where they could give it their all, then go and have a cup of tea and a rest. Uh, And they'd know all those old routines. Yes. That'd be great. When I was still in the third year at at Guildford School of Acting, I did panto. Do you know Christopher Lillycrat? Yes, I do, yeah. He's a famous pantomime performer. Yes, I didn't realise at the time because I was only sort of 21. But um, yes, he's the kind of very well known in in that world, isn't he? A director, writer, performer, everything, yeah. Yeah. And we did a show in Coventry and uh, 
it was called Christmas 2000, although it was 1999. And what was interesting about it was it was a kid's show. It wasn't billed as a panto, but it had all the elements of panto. So it was really funny. And I think it was a kind of warped retelling of the nativity with lots of things going wrong. And (laughs) I remember even at that young age thinking thinking about how complicated it is to put a panto together and how I think that the average punter, and certainly when I went when I was a kid, wanting to do acting from a very young age, so sort of always going to things with a view of like, how did they do that? I still didn't really get how much effort goes in to putting one together. I think because it's so much fun to watch. I sometimes think this with comedy generally as well. When something's fun to watch, it can be easy to think that less effort has to go into it than say with a TV drama like Unforgotten, which I adore, or Line of Duty, where it's very obviously been worked on so hard and they've had to get all the information correct. If elements are missing, it falls down. And children, the moment that it doesn't work, they give up on it. Yes, they do. That's why it can be terrifying to perform in front of children (laughs) because (laughs) they're not going to lie. Yeah, absolutely. And then you see people when Stephen, my actor friend, was in Panto with Julian Clary and Julian Clary was incredible. It was like everything he did, the audience was laughing their heads off. And again, I think that could look easy. And you think, no, he's had to learn the script. And then he's had to, he's using his instincts to know exactly when to deviate from the script and when to come back. And as you say, those small moments, so the audience feel they're in a secret club with him and that this is the only performance where he might be doing a line like that. There's so much spectacle involved, isn't there? There is. It is a very difficult thing to put together. I think all of us need a four-leaf clover at times. (laughs) So we'll put that in as your first item. Yes. Lovely. So what's your second item? My second item is a cat jumper. Not a jumper for a cat. Um, (laughs) A jumper for my daughter that I'm knitting, that I've been knitting since she was three and she's now six. (laughs) It's taken me so long. Um, And my sister gave me the pattern for it and it was a bit ambitious for me because I do love knitting, but this involves a technique called intarsia, which is to do with how you create a picture. So it's got two cats looking over a wall at a mouse and the mouse is a stuffed mouse, like a cat toy, I suppose. And it's attached to the jumper by its tail and it can go in either pocket. So it's quite a complicated design. And these cats, there are two ways of making a picture on a knitted jumper. You can either just knit a plain colour and then afterwards essentially embroider the picture on. Yeah. Or there are probably more than two ways, but for me, there are two main ways. This is the other way. We'll be on knitters knitting to this. Like, there are 17 ways, actually. Um, Intarsia is where you basically have to swap the colours over as you're doing it and kind of wrap them round each other and then start with the new colour. And then instead of carrying the wool across to swap back to the first colour across the back, if you can imagine carrying it across the row, you um, cut the first wool off. So it all gets very complicated. You've got all these ends of wool that you have to kind of sew in somehow without them showing up on the other side. Anyway, this entire bit of the two cats took me about 18 months because <laughs> every time I picked it up, I'd do it wrong. I'd have to unpick it. And I was just like, oh my God. And um, there's an actress called Georgie Glenn, very, very funny and often playing quite stern characters. Yeah, We were doing a show called Damned Together for Channel 4 and um, she kind of re-taught me how to knit. Someone had taught me a long time ago on a job and my mum had taught me, but I hadn't ever really done it. Then she, and she's quite, she was like, no, darling, that's wrong. So I'd sort of get to the end of the row and she'd be like, no. And she was great because she wouldn't let me get away with um, a, a bad stitch. She'd say, no, you've got to unpick it. And then when I'm not with Georgie, everything falls apart. So <laughs> I've got to try and get another job with her because I think she'd finished the cat jumper uh, for me. Uh, have you not finished it yet? No, it's still not finished. So <laughs> it's size five to six. So in the interim, since starting, I've had a son who's two. And I was wise enough when I chose the colours to think, well, we do want another kid. But I chose colours that were, it's like a kind of the colour of maybe 
bracken, like a kind of purpley, lovely, proper wool. And we've got moths. So I don't know if I'll knit with real wool again after this because they've already (laughs) made a hole in the back of it. Luckily, not on one of the cat's faces, but on the back of the jumper. Oh, no. Because if they did it on, if moths got to the actual intarsia bit, the picture of the cats, I would lose my mind because (laughs) cat lost an eye to a moth, you know. So your daughter, if she's six and this is for size five to six, you've got to finish it this year. Well, I know. And also it's getting warmer now. So in winter, I thought, when actually when COVID hit, I thought I'll do loads of knitting and that's how I'll do it. I'll bake and I'll knit. And then of course we had the kids at home anyway. So I didn't do anything like that. I just tried to stop us all from going (laughs) mad. Um, And now they're back, you know, in school and at childcare, I've got to work. So you sort of imagine, don't you, we'll have all this time. Yeah. And also I had to concentrate on it. I can't do anything else while I'm doing it. It's not like when you see people knitting in front of the telly without looking down. I've got to sort of put 100%. So I did try it on her the other day and it was too short because she's quite tall. So I'm hoping that I'll finish it by the time my son's four. So I've got two more years. (laughs) And then I think I might have to do a show about it called The Cat Jumper. The Cat Jumper, Because it feels like, you know, it's almost going to span a decade. (laughs) You should give everybody some wool. Oh, that's such a good idea. There could be knitting needles and wool on every seat. Have a competition to see who could knit the best thing during the show. Yes. I mean, knitters would have an unfair advantage, but that doesn't matter. You know, life isn't fair, is it? You sort of go, well, you clearly have experience. That's okay as a scarf. You have clearly never knitted anything. This is amazing. Yes, you're right. I'll do it each person on their own merit. Yeah. Yeah, what a great idea. And then maybe at the end of the run, the person who knitted the best thing could keep the cat jumper because by then my son might have grown out of it. (laughs) This is it. You can produce it. Or you could say, I'll knit you another jumper. It'll be with you in eight years. (laughs) How old will you be in 10 years, just to be safe? (laughs) Oh, God. My mother was a big knitter. She was one of those people who sat and watched the television. Was she? Yeah. And could she do it without looking down? Great Aaron jumpers of all sorts of complicated patterns and things. And occasionally she'd look at the pattern, but she hardly ever looked at her fingers. That generation, she probably learnt it at school, Mm. I imagine. Or at the very least, it was around more when she was a young girl. Yeah, I doubt very much you would have bought a jumper. I think it was such a great satisfaction to creating something that you can use. So... I don't paint or anything like that. And I know a lot of performers do, don't they? They seem to be multi-skilled. I'm not even sure I'm skilled. (laughs) (laughs) I did learn to knit, though. Oh, did you? Yeah, when I was at college. I don't know why. All I could knit was scarves, one pattern. And uh, I never went any further. Like everything in life with me, I learned a bit of it, and that was enough for me. But that's fine. You you mastered it and then you moved on. Moved on. I've got that. <laughs> Could be really good at it. Can't be bothered. But um, there's a sketch from Not the Nine O'Clock News on an aeroplane and I am sitting behind Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones, but I'm, I'm knitting. So it's the biggest focus puller you've ever seen. Well, it's very unusual to see a young man knitting it still. Is. I mean, there's no reason why it should be, no. but it is. And I can imagine <laughs> What's that guy doing? <laughs> what a great way of pulling focus, though. <laughs> Terrible. Shameful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, well, um, do you want the finished jumper in the time capsule? I think I want it finished. I think I would like to finish it. So I'll give it to you in in, in three or four years when it's done. Okay. So you'll have to leave the time capsule open oh, right. for yeah, the yeah. cat jumper. Yeah, it can be opened. Uh, hopefully you'll not put anything in there that will be spoiled. Yes. But I'll, okay. I'll leave a note on the outside saying not quite complete yet. <laughs> but that goes in as your second item. So what's number three? Okay, we're going to take an ad break now, but we'll be back very shortly. See you in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to My Time Capsule with the lovely Izzy Sooty. Let's find out what else she would like to put in her time capsule. So number three is skis, because I love skiing. And for some reason that surprises people, but I do. I love skiing. I'm not brilliant at it. I'm not terrible. Um, I've been quite a few times, I suppose probably 10 times. So I I should be better at it than I am, but (laughs) I don't really want to ever go down a black run, although I have been down them, but I don't ever want to get good at going around moguls and things like that. I'd rather just do, as I get older, nice, easy blue and green runs through beautiful trees and dappled light. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've had some insane mishaps when I've been skiing, but now I've had kids, I just don't want to do that stuff anymore. No, although yeah. if you take your kids, eventually they will. Yeah, that's why, I'd, in a way, I shouldn't. We did take Betty when she was a baby and uh, my mum kept saying, we booked it before she was born. We go, it'll be fine. She'll only be a few months old. She'll be easy to carry around. And my mum was saying, You're, it won't be like that. You will have just given birth, essentially. <laughs> And then it was uh, highly stressful. It was highly stressful, but it was just worth it. I think I got to do probably about eight hours of skiing in the whole week in mm-hmm. total of, um, because yeah, it was, uh, it was tough, but it was still worth it. Yeah. Where have you been? Mostly Europe or all over the place? Yeah, mostly Europe. When I was a kid, we went on one skiing holiday when I was probably about 11 and that was to Bulgaria. And that, my mum and dad met skiing so they'd always both really liked it, but so when was that? Well, I was born in '78. They it's probably in the early '70s, and I think it was a singles skiing holiday as well. I, th- I seem to remember that Dad and his friend had advertised for women to come, <laughs> um, single women to come on this skiing holiday. But it's quite a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, you know, let's not go on a blind date for a couple of hours. Let's all go on holiday together. <laughs> yes. But that's how they met. Um, it worked then. It worked, yeah. So yes, we all went to Bulgaria and we never used to go abroad as a family. We sometimes went camping in France, but we weren't, my parents sort of thought it was a bit of a waste of money to kind of go to Disney World or something. So mum said, look, well, this might be the only time we go skiing, mm. you know, when you're kids, which it was. So she made us ski suits out of these 70s duvets that she sprayed <laughs> with um, some kind of spray, to, like a water resistant spray I guess so that when the snow went on them they didn't immediately become saturated and made them into ski suits so we had this that probably actually now would be quite cool but then we're just oh my god but like puffer jackets Yes, exactly. But with these kind of brown and orange flowers on them. So they were from the <laughs> 70s. And buttons at the bottom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So yes, went there and then then my best friend from school, they used to go every year, big group of them on, you know, as cheap as you can, just Europe, like no frills. And that's been mostly my experience now. There'll be a really big group of us. It's so much fun and uh, just lots of booze and mm. yeah, lots of kind of going down runs that you're not quite ready to go down and stuff. <laughs> we did do one posh one, Morzine, which is much nicer than any other resort that we've been to. And we were really out of place. And there were always loads of scousers there who were like really loud and so funny, who I love with all my heart. And we'd like go into these really posh, um, you know, 
very scheme bars and be like, okay, who wants a pint? And uh, you see all these people kind of, like, sort of Kate Middleton type people and then us. So yeah, that was the only time that we went to a resort like that. And then uh, mm. went Yes, I have a group basics. of friends who've all done very well for themselves. And uh, are you going to Cochevel this year? Yes. And I go, no, I'm bloody not. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you bought somewhere out there yet? Have you, you not know, got a place? Yeah. I've, got a, I've got a place. You can come stay at my place. No, I'm not going to bloody Cochevel. Well, have you ever skied? I have skied. Yeah. First time I skied was a school trip. And I, what I remember about it was that the teachers, when we got there, almost left us entirely alone. They then got absolutely hammered every night and we were put into little ski schools. Yeah. But in the afternoon, we could ski on our own. And there was never a teacher there. Wow. I know. We had a wild time. I bet you did. I would have loved that. That was the first time I got really drunk on some horrible thing like bowls or something, Advocar. Yeah, it's always those sickly drinks, isn't it? Those kind of sweet sticky drinks yes <laughs> then you're, oh god yeah i know <laughs> but i'm like you i like just slowly wending my way down a nice gentle slope that's got to be the sign that you're getting older hasn't it and i'm not rejecting it i'm very happy to receive <laughs> that sort of i look at these red and black runs that i would have gone flung myself down 10 years ago and just think thank god that i'm 42 now and that i'm not i mean we got really drunk one night when a big group of us probably in my late 20s, early 30s, and we stole a table from a restaurant that was stacked up outside. And me and two of my friends walked all the way up the main run and into the resort, which was a red run, about two in the morning. And we put the table (laughs) down on its kind of with the bit that you would normally put the plates on and everything on the snow. So it was upside down. Then we sat on the underneath of it and held onto the upturned legs. And then it went down at such a speed, you wouldn't believe it. I do believe it. We were saying, will it be slow? I mean, that's how drunk we were saying, maybe it won't go. (laughs) And it was a shiny surface on snow. For Micah. Yeah, oh Oh my my God. God. And they rolled off because they were on either side. And uh, I stayed, I couldn't get off. (laughs) We was turning round and round. I was just holding on to these legs and then just ended up tangled up in um, this kind of fencing. I was absolutely fine. But I do always think that... If you can fall well, and I remember us learning to fall at college and not tensing up, and because I was so drunk as well, I think that probably how drunk I was saved me from breaking a bone because I was completely relaxed. (laughs) Uh, So um, have you been with your children? Um, No, I think... I think what will happen is hopefully in the next few years, I'll go for a weekend with my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that'd be a lot easier than going as a family, but maybe when they're a bit older. Yeah, when they can pay for themselves. Yes, exactly. We'll get them to pay for us. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, well, let's put skiing in, in all its glory. Do you want to pick a, a particular resort or a mountain? Let's go for Sousy, um, because we just always had such a good time there. All right, that's where it is. Great. (laughs) Right, let's move on to item number four. Okay, item number four is the singer Jake Thackeray. Yeah, I know Jake Thackeray. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. To describe him, he was. Yeah, how do you. He had a very gentle, soft voice, didn't he? And he used to sing sort of whimsical songs. Yeah. I, I can almost do an impersonation of him. Do you want me to have a go? Yes, go on. So, my name is Jake Thackeray. He used to sing in a very soft voice like that. Is that right? Is that him? That's exactly right. That's uncanny. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know I could do it. I mean, if you anyone needs a Jake Thackeray impersonator, seriously, that was brilliant. So he, yes, he he does these whimsical songs often about people, doesn't he? Um, yeah. And he's also an incredible musician. And I think sometimes his guitar playing for me is more important than what he's singing because it's so beautiful and I think and it's the actual melodies I find very moving at times um he has been accused of being sexist sort of it when you look at the songs now Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like it is a bit like oh god but I sort of forgive him it because I love the melodies so much I kind of listen more to the melodies in those bits yeah um yeah not exactly sexist perhaps but there's definitely kind of male and female designated roles in some of his songs. and I should imagine he was just reflecting society. Yeah, I think that too. And I think in a way that's why it's 
it doesn't feel right for me to judge him in the light of now. What he's saying isn't offensive, it's just of that time. But they were often love songs, weren't they, that he wrote? Yeah, they were. And there's a real, I think there's a real kind of um, sad undertone to some of the songs. And there's Mm -hmm. one of them that I used to listen to again and again called Remember Bethlehem. Because he was very religious, which people don't realise. And in his later life, religion played an even bigger part of his existence. And he kind of shunned fame because he started to get a regular spot on a TV show. And then he didn't want to write songs to order. He wanted to write the songs that he wanted to write. So it was almost like a choice for him between the more commercial success where you'd make more money, but perhaps not be as pure in terms of his artistry that was very important to him. No, when I was a boy, he had a big hit, I remember. Uh, It'll come to me. La-di-da, it was called. Yes, yes, la-di-da, yeah. I was listening to that the other night. The Remember Bethlehem is about Mary giving birth to Jesus and it's very straight. It's not not a comic song. Um, I believe he wrote it, but I find it tremendously moving to listen to. I just... um, I just love it. And I was doing a play when I was first pregnant with Betty and I I couldn't tell anyone that I was pregnant. Yeah. I was on stage the whole time, apart from a quick change. I was playing the woman who wrote The A to Z, Phyllis <laughs> Pearsall. I couldn't tell anyone I was pregnant. I felt sick all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to listen to this song, Remember Bethlehem, on the bus on the way home. And I it used to make me feel so uplifted. And I think that music is so powerful and there are some songs that make me laugh of his. And there are some lines that are very well written and very witty. But I think for me, more than that, it's the it's the musicianship and the melodies that really make me feel kind of overwhelmed with being alive. I think that's the best way I can say it, really. It's understated, though, isn't it, his style, completely? Yeah, it is. You have to sort of listen carefully, I think. Greg Davis really loves him and we're always thinking about trying to do a documentary on him and then we don't <laughs> kind of get any further than going, wouldn't it be great to kind of do an hour where we got to meet, because he's not alive anymore, is he? But go and meet his family and perhaps if they'd be up for it. And, All I'm saying is if yeah. you need somebody to do the voices. <gasps> of course, maybe <laughs> we could get members of his family to close their eyes and we could play real recordings of Jake Thackeray and then you, and then they could guess which was which. All right. No, they'd guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think... Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to look up if he wrote it or not. Anyway, I think he wrote it. It sounds like he did, because to me, it's kind of in the same vein as as his other stuff. But it's about how lonely Mary is when she's giving birth. And it's a very kind of small moment of him kind of honing in on how she must have felt. And I guess because I was pregnant as well and just really chimed with me. And I used to listen to it again and again. And then I find sometimes that when you go back to songs that really moved you, sometimes all the appeal's gone and you kind of go, oh, I listened to it too much. And oh, well, at least I had that moment with it. Whereas with that song, I can listen to it now and have the same reaction as I did. So uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you first come across Jake Thackeray? Because he wouldn't have been terribly popular when you were young, would he? No, um, my friend Matt Tiller, who writes songs as well and and does comedy, he sent me a recording of Jake Thackeray a really long time ago and said, I think you'd really like him, I suppose because I write comic songs as well. And- I mean, if that's what you do, then then it's it's always worthwhile exploring all the other people who've done it. Yeah, definitely. And then like with people like Victoria Wood, because early on, some people said, oh, some of your songs are a bit similar to what Victoria Wood does. And then I listened to a few of them and I was like, oh God, these are amazing. And I've sort of, of course, heard them before, but I properly listened to a few of hers and I was like, <laughs> and then I thought, I don't think I should listen to too much more of her stuff because I don't ever want to subconsciously kind of absorb what she's done and regurgitate it and then go, oh my God, that wasn't my idea. So whereas with Jake Thackeray, it feels like he's quite a different songwriter from me and he does these quite quick lines of wordplay, which I don't really do. Yeah. Um, and he really likes being playful with words in quite rapid succession within a single line of music. And his guitar playing, as I say, I just get really entranced with that. So yeah, Matt Tiller sent me this recording and then I just started listening to it and I really liked it. And really, I mean, when I was at school, I was writing serious songs first 
for about the age of 12, very serious songs. And then slowly I started to do these characters and then they kind of wove their way in. Yeah, I think if you've got an instinct for jokes and you've got an instinct yeah. an instinct for the the comic, as it were, that when you hear something, you automatically are led down to the possibility of a joke from it. Yes. If you've got that kind of brain, I don't think you can turn it off. Well, I would encourage everybody to listen to Jake Thackeray. I think he's absolutely fabulous. And you've reminded me of him. So I'm definitely going to have a listen later. Good. We'll put him into the time capsule. So you've got, sadly, only one item left. Um, Okay. So the last item I want to put in is The Secret Diaries of Adrian Mole. If it's all right to have more than one book. Yeah, of course it is. Because the first book was the first funny book I'd ever read. (laughs) And um, I was at my cousin's in Cheshire and I thought it was a real diary of a boy called Adrian Mole, and I couldn't believe how funny he happened to be. <laughs> um, I didn't sort of really remember the cover of it with the toothbrush. I was probably about his age, maybe 13 or 14, and um, I just really loved it, and I thought it was so funny, and then I realised it wasn't by a boy who was actually 13 and who was an incredible writer and managed to get a publisher. I realised it was by this brilliant woman called Sue Townsend. He was a boy named Sue, yes. Yes, Yes, exactly. Had to change his name. It's so hard for 13-year-old boys in publishing, Um, like the Brontes. So, yeah, um, I've now read other books by Sue Townsend and I think she's an amazing writer because she's quite chameleonic and... I read this one called Ghost Children that's very sad and quite harrowing. And she was a very versatile writer, but obviously people know mostly the Adrian Mole stuff. Mm. And I think that you can't necessarily pinpoint... That you. I, I find it hard to go back and think, because I do write now and I've just written my second book, actually. You don't... I sometimes think that it feels a bit convoluted to go back and go, oh, that was the moment I the, the seed was planted. I think it's often an amalgamation of lots of different things. But there's no doubt that if there had been a moment mm. um, where a kind of bright light came from the sky and I went, oh, maybe in 30 years I'll write, <laughs> I'll write a, a book, um, that it would have been that moment because... It was just brilliant to read a book on my own that was so funny. Mm. And I think there's often a a moment when you're in your teens, when you discover reading for yourself and it's not books that you've been told to read or books that you're reading at school and you're not having to learn anything from it. It's just for the joy of reading. And it was around that time and it was just so brilliant to laugh so much at a book because I hadn't (laughs) done that before. And Catch-22 I read when I did Mike Harding's show actually in Manchester Youth Theatre and I found that very funny as well. And that was kind of the second book that really, really made me laugh. But Sue Townsend is is the one for me who kind of did it first. I don't think I've ever read the Adrian Mole books. Oh, really? No, I think probably when I was that age, I was reading books that took you away from places. Lord of the Rings was perfect for me because it was enormous and yeah. you could just be in this other place. Isn't it great when you're reading one of those books that, like I'm thinking of the Philip Pullman books as well, mm. now, like his Dark Materials, when you love a book like that and it's in a completely other world, when it's very thick, it's just brilliant because you think, I love this so much and there's so much more to go. And it's like the opposite of when you hate a book and you think, oh God, there's so much to go. It's so heavy. <laughs> um, I think it, when you create a book that's really, really thick, it's tricky because it's got to be really, really good. Mm. Whereas when a book's like 300 pages long, it's less of a, a gamble for people to pick up. Isn't <laughs> yeah. it? <laughs> so how long's your book? Actually, it's 304 pages long. That's why I just plucked <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like it was planned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I've just handed it in. I handed it in at 11.30pm last night and Adobe Acrobat <gasps> stopped working at 10.30 and it just kept saying, the document can't be opened. Would you like to send a report? Oh, no. I know. It was like a film and I just couldn't believe it was happening. I was so stressed. And I'd said to myself, I'm going to have a Bailey's when I've handed it in and the rest of this apple crumble that we made on Sunday. <laughs> and then it's like the Baileys and the apple crumble were getting further and further away as this, and then it kept saying, updating will only be a few minutes, but then nothing was happening. And uh, I even rang my friend who lives down the road, who's very good with computers. And he said, just wait a minute. And then we, five minutes later, it just was fine. I think it genuinely was updating, but I, right. oh God, you know, when you start panicking and I'm so bad with technology that I, I was just thinking, 
well, I can't see that it's updating. So, yes. I absolutely know that sense because I've done a lot of these over the internet. So at the end of it, I then save the recording. And just every now and again, it yeah. says, do what? The computer almost sits there and looks at you as much as say, I don't know what save means. Yes, it's in the same way as a cat looks at you sometimes, isn't yeah. it? Like cats can have this look of... You think, I don't, I don't know you at all. And it's the same with the computer. It's sort of, it's whimsical at times. It goes, no, I might not do the thing that you think I'm going to do. Yeah. What What do you mean I've always done that? Yeah. I, I don't remember doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened last night. But it's in now. It's in. Oh, brilliant. So go on, can you tell me what it's about? Well, it's about a woman called Jane who is... Um, quite a- an anxious person. That's enough, I'm yeah. bored now. There we yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Brilliant. I'm going to pitch everything to you. One sentence, <laughs> yes, no, yes. <laughs> um, she's uh, she's trying for a baby. Um, she's quite an anxious person. She sort of wants everything to be perfect. She works in advertising in London and then her fiancé has an affair and she finds out, so she moves back home to the sticks with her very overprotective and quite anxious parents and then one thing happens after another and she's kind of plunged into quite an an untenable situation for her and has to kind of find her own way out of it. Oh brilliant. Yeah. Is it in the style of the first book that you wrote? No it isn't really Um, although I did write the first sort of I had to write this sample section for the publisher that was probably about 20,000 words and the first draft of that my literary agent was really honest and said it just doesn't sound like you so he was like don't try and write a serious book just write it as you want to write it and although at the time I was like oh god how am I going to do it he was absolutely right and so the next draft I didn't worry about it being a novel because the first book was memoirs so it was easier to write because it was bits of stand-up really and things mm. I'd done before. Whereas I think I sort of thought, oh, this is a novel, therefore I must be a writer. And it was <laughs> yeah. actually like, no, you can just do it in your voice. So in that sense, it is similar to the first book in that it has got lots of jokes in it. Although it's often quite serious because she's got this devastating fear of hospitals and can't go in them. I've tried to make those moments very real and kind of researched how this fear of hospitals can develop. I wanted to basically make her fears and anxieties really extreme so that, because it's very much, a lot more fun, isn't it, to plunge characters into sort of high stakes situations. <laughs> Deep angst. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I knew I wanted there to be a bookshop in it because there's a bookshop near my hometown called Scarthen Books in Cromford, which is amazing. Um, and it's kind of like lots of corridors stacked with books from the floor to the ceiling and lots of odd little newspaper clippings in, in this great cafe and all like a kind of cubby hole with with books in it. And so I know I just knew I, I wanted to write a thing about a bookshop for a long time. So she gets a job in a bookshop oh, when great. she goes home. She knows nothing about books. And the only book that she can remember reading is Sharon Osbourne's autobiography and she hasn't <laughs> finished it. So she's suddenly with all these literary types coming to do book readings and kind of go, oh, you know. <laughs> oh, well, well, good luck with it. Thank you. When's it out? Come on. July the 22nd. Well, that's when I'm planning to put this out. Okay, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to be able to do something like that because people so often do these recordings with no ulterior motive whatsoever. They're just yeah, doing it because yeah. they're nice. So, dear Adrian Mole, bless him, 13 and a half. Is that right? Is it 13 and three quarters? Oh, people are going to be shouting at their devices. <laughs> <laughs> 13. Just 13. He's 13. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> 13 and something. Let's say between 13 and 14. He's definitely that. Yeah. Okay. The lovely Sue Townsend and her books go into the time capsule with Adrian Mole at the top of the pile. That's what we'll do. Yes. Brilliant. Okay. So the final thing you're going to put into the time capsule. This is a final thing that I don't like. That's right. Yeah. You've got to put something in. Because I don't like it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the thing I'm going to choose is tidying up. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to talk very specifically about, I don't like tidying up the living room. I like tidying up the kitchen. So actually tidying up the living room is the thing that I want to put in. Um, And I think the reason is there's so many toys in the living room because we've got a two-year-old and six-year-old and they're always mixed together. There are always tiny counters from one game, you know, (laughs) put inside a doll's neck and then the head's missing. And I absolutely hate having to sort them out into piles and working out where they should go. And I 
I try and avoid tidying the living room as much as possible to the point where I'll just sweep everything into the corner. And if it's good enough, we'll just leave it. There's a car seat in the middle of the living room at, at the moment that they're using as a rocking chair. And they have so much fun on it. I just think, well, just leave it in the middle of the floor. I don't care. Whereas for some reason, the kitchen has to be spotless or I can't operate. So it's really weird. It's like I've picked, kind of nailed my colours to the mast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing moment. You don't notice it happening, but suddenly you'll be sitting one evening and you'll realise that you've got your living room back. Really? I can guarantee this. I can't this. even imagine it. Okay. At, having had children and now grandchildren, yeah. I remember specifically suddenly becoming aware that we'd got our living room back, that all those toys that were kept in the living room had all gone and all the other toys were in their bedroom. That's brilliant. I mean, isn't that, I, I just think, I, I can't imagine that moment, but I want to believe it will happen. I can see how. And actually, as Betty was getting older, we were getting rid of sort of big toys that she, you know, like when you put balls through things. But then we had another baby and it was like, oh gosh, we'll have to do all this again and get it all down from the attic. And, <laughs> but that's it now. So once he's disinterested in yeah. those toys, then it's time to start giving them to other people. Yeah. I wouldn't change it for the world. No, no. They're all glorious, even though you think at the time that this will never end. This is my life now. I'm always going to wake up at four o'clock in the morning for the rest of my life. Yeah. And then it stops. It's a very weird thing having children because the moment it stops, you miss it. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That's why you have another one. <laughs> if you want to, if you can, you know, I think that you do forget and then you do miss it. And there are times that you're really stressed and you just need 10 minutes on your own. Then you get 10 minutes on your own. This is more when they're newborns, perhaps. And all you do is look at photos of them on your phone. <laughs> it's so weird. You just can't. Yeah. Or you get a rare night out together and you just talk about the kids. So, yeah, it's a bit chaotic at the moment, especially because of COVID. Yes, I think all parents, particularly parents with young children, have been through the year they'll never forget. Yes. I think also for children, they'll never forget it. This will be like the Enid Blyton year. Yeah. I'm sure they'll remember the hours and hours they've spent with your parents. My daughter had to write a thing about going back to school, what she was scared of. And I found it the other day and she said she was nervous. And it said, what was the best thing about lockdown? And it said, being with mum and dad. And I thought, oh, that, that's brilliant. I mean, mm. God, there were stressful times with the homeschooling. I mean, oh. You know, who can say it's been a smooth ride? But I thought if she's still thinking that after we've been in each other's pockets and I've, you know, sort of felt at times that I'm losing my mind, then that's great. It must mean that she yeah. really loves us at the very least, you know. Yeah. And we've had, we have had moments of great fun as well. Um, as I'm sure lots of people have had a kind of checkered year of difficult moments and good moments and some people have had a very hard time. For a lot of us, we can't get perspective on it yet. It's like, it's not quite ended, has it? But, no. Um, yeah, I think the, the living room, I almost think that when everything's chaotic, you kind of go, okay, if I spend the whole evening tidying up, it's going to be an hour and then that's it. I just have to go to bed. So it's like I've picked the kitchen to be the thing that I will make sure it's tidy and clean and then the bathroom to an extent, and then the other rooms can just... The children will probably get to the living room before you. Well, that's what I always think. It's like, what's the point? They're going to just take <laughs> everything out of this box. <laughs> just leave it there. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah. And then eventually they'll stop playing with it. Then you'll go, oh, I don't want to get rid of this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, remember all those cars. Weren't they lovely? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the stickle brick. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a big box of stickle bricks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the um, the living room and all its untidiness, you won't have to do it again. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are, Izzy. That's it. Everything's in the time capsule. Everything is right with the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. You have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest izzy sooty 
please subscribe to this podcast to hear all our previous episodes and the lovely ones to come. Uh, we've got some nice ones coming up, actually, including Robert Llewellyn from Red Dwarf, Omid Jalili, Shapi Sandy, and Victor Meldrew himself, Richard Wilson. To find out more, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search My Time Capsule or Fenton Stevens. You can download the full version of the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and was a cast-off production. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'm going to try and improve my knitting skills in case Izzy needs some help. So, let's see. Hang on a minute. Um, Knit one. Pearl one. Knit one. Pearl one, knit one. Can you stop that tapping? I'm trying to concentrate. Thank you. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.